for bringing up many of those other needs that we have. There are a lot of things that, uh, in, in a good way, that we do have need of. Uh, a couple of those, again, still, children's ministry director, somebody, whether we can pay you or volunteer, be great. Deacons, need more deacons, Sunday school teachers, and however the Lord puts something on your heart. You know, we want to make sure, as Jeff just prayed, that we're following him and we want to be as pleasing to him as we possibly can. So if God is urging you in some area, then let's, uh, let's talk about it and see what uh, he would have from it. Okay. All right. So um, today is going to be the conclusion of our, and I didn't really know how many parts it was going to be, uh, but we'll just call it our third part of our subject of biblical sexuality and, and um, biblical marriage. And so um, you'll remember that I started all this out a couple weeks ago with um, the news that Canada had uh, made a law against conversion therapy, and that was designed particularly from uh, professional counselors to keep from counseling people who are in the homosexual lifestyle, the gay lifestyle, and keeping them from causing them to go back into more of a heterosexual lifestyle. Canada made that a law. What I didn't realize uh, is that um, Governor Northam, back in March of 2020, also passed a law in Virginia on this same thing, on conversion therapies. And I've got a link here that will help you to read all about that or give you more information. That He signed that into law in March. It became effective on July 1st, which is when the new laws take place in Virginia. And so, uh, but here was the thing that he said about it um, that was uh, troubling to me. And I, and I want to preface a little bit of this with uh, there are times where conversion therapy should have been outlawed. And I just have to affirm that. I would agree uh, with the other side that when therapy is done in a way that is harmful to a person, and I'm talking about through whether it's electric shock, and that may sound as a shock to you, but that is what has happened over the years. A long time in the past, I don't know how frequently or how, how, how current that has been, uh, but that's certainly been the case. Um, uh, Debbie and I have been to Romania many, many times, and, and there uh, we, we visit a village, uh, Shagid, where uh, there were horrible, horrible things done in the name of therapy to people who were either... Um, from poor classes of people, uh, people that just weren't going to make it in life or had some physical deformity or infirmity about them. And so tremendously uh, dangerous and damaging things were done. Many of them died. Uh, we go to a graveyard there and you can see where the young people died from just the vicious work of, of what was done in the name of therapy. And so certainly that should have been done. But typically, therapy is done in the form of what's called talk therapy, which is just what you might think it to be. You come in, you sit down with a counselor, and you talk about whatever's going on, and you get some reflective responses from that. Well, that has a good uh, way of working itself through. And so um, this whole subject of banning conversion therapy, Governor Northam said this, and this is a quote from March the 3rd, and this was in an NBC News article Conversion therapy sends the harmful message that there is something wrong with who you are. Now, the law that was passed was particularly for people who were 18 and younger. And so anybody 18 and younger could not go through a conversion therapy specifically on this subject of sexual orientation. Well, as I read that, I thought, there is a problem, Governor. Uh, and the problem is, is that we are all sinful, that is a huge problem. In fact, that problem is what not only causes us to go off into a lifestyle like we're talking about in these weeks of our, of our subject, but also keeps us from heaven. It is hugely a problem. And so we should not minimize it. Now, I'm not going to put words in the former governor's mouth as to that's what he was thinking about in the spiritual sense. But I do want to share that with you because, as you know, as well as I know now, uh, that this kind of thing is just growing rampantly where there is a lot of division on it. And so we want to approach everything from a biblical perspective because that's what God does. That's who God is. That's who we are as God's people. And uh, unless we deal with life, sin itself, 
the way God says we're to deal with it, then we're certainly going to miss our mark. And the way God says we are to deal with it is predominantly in two ways. One is to repent. And that simply means we see our error. We turn around mentally, emotionally. Uh, sometimes that means physically, uh, even in a case like this. And then we accept Jesus as our redeemer, the one who pays the debt of our sin. And we'll talk more about specific sins in other ways as we close this out. And so uh, to address the subject, as you well know, if you've been listening, the last two sermons, I first started out with just giving a, a foundation of what God says about gay lifestyle and how it is a violation of everything that he has uh, said to us as far as what he created for man and woman, as well as the next message I gave to you, a, uh, a biblical defense if you want to put it that way, of um, a couple different arguments. And there are many arguments that the community has against the biblical text, um, which are on our website, by the way, if you want to see those. And either on our YouTube channel, you can also watch those sermons that way. So I'm not going to reiterate any of those at this point. But today, what I do want to do is I want to finish this subject up uh, because I know you're probably tired of it. Um, I'm tired of it. I'm ready to get back to Matthew and so we're going to do that. We want to finish this particular part. But there is some things, or there are some things that I really need to cover. And so I just want to touch on one particular argument uh, this afternoon or this morning uh, and then wrap up with some conclusion. Now, as I was alluding to or even saying, there are other arguments that the gay community has in regard to biblical arguments that converse or that counter what they're thinking. And let me just mention two of those. One is... The thought or the, the belief is that the Old Testament laws against homosexuality have no relevance for the New Testament believers. That's what the gay community would say, specifically in response to Leviticus 18 and 20. In other words, what they're saying basically is it's been done away with. That's no longer a part of what we should be considering as valid for us today. But the truth is, if you study Leviticus, and there are lots of subjects in Leviticus, some things that we don't hold to in a physical way today, but what we do hold to, and I think I've mentioned this before, we hold to the morality of the law. Specifically, though, from the book of Leviticus, if you're looking for some theme in the, in the book, you will see God very clearly saying, we are to be holy people because he is holy. And he covers a lot of subjects. One of the predominant subjects he covers, though, is the area of sexual life. And he talks about very specific subjects. If you go back to the first message, you'll hear where I read some of that. All along the theme of living a holy life. Again, he particularly points out this one that we're talking about now, the area of homosexuality. And, and just to make it more clear for us that God has not abandoned what he said in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus said, I came not to do away with the law, but I came and fulfilled the law in myself. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus said, oh, I'm done with you, law. That means that the law was righteous. It is righteous in its way that God put it to be. And so Jesus came to be the fulfillment of everything that it is. And I hope that you get that by now. Paul would pick up on the same thought of holiness as he gets to his letters in the New Testament. And even Peter, in his letter of 1 Peter, reiterates the same phrase in chapter 1, verse 16. You are to be holy. Why? Because the Lord is holy. Now, I'm bringing that out because there is the reasoning among some people that holiness should be defined by different means. Well, if you do any kind of Bible study at all, you understand that that's not the case. Holiness has one meaning, and that is, is that we follow God and who he is. That's why the text says, I am holy, therefore you be holy. In other words, here, I am the marker, I'm the measuring rod, I'm the tape measure, I'm the standard, whatever you want it to be, that's me. In this particular subject, like all subjects biblically and life, God says, look to me. Okay, so that really doesn't hold water either. The other argument, very briefly, is the word they would say for homosexuals in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11 is not the right translation. Now, what they mean by that is that the word really should have been translated as either pedophiles or some person who is involved in prostitution or something that would be considered and I'm saying this uh, for just a frame of reference that would be far different from people who have a consensual love for each other. 
Okay? This would be an aggressive type of love pushed on somebody else without the desire of the other person or for some means of ill-gotten gain. Okay? Um, but if you study the text again, and this is why we're here, you see very clearly that Paul wrote what he did, or when he wrote what he did, he's not talking about men having relations with children. You just go back and you look at the very general way in the words that Paul uses to define what he's talking about. In fact, if Paul were talking about pedophiles, he would have used the word in Greek for that. There's actually words there that are descriptive of that type of life. But he doesn't do that, and that's because God in his infinite wisdom knows that man, is, and Satan particularly behind it all, is going to try to create some means in which they adjust to their liking what God says. And that's something we should never do. Our, our job as God's people is always to say, wait a minute, I think and feel this way, but let's see what God says. And then we adjust ourselves based on how God and what he says, okay? Now, again, there's much more I could say about all of that, not to mention the fact that all the major translations, in fact, what you hold in your laps, and I've gone back and I've looked at the major translations, they all translate this word, homosexuals, in these two passages the exact same way, okay, or something very similar. King James is the only one that rephrases or phrases the term a little bit differently, but you get the exact same meaning. Now, that's important because the scholars who put together the text of Scripture over the years are very, very learned people who have studied the languages for years and years and years, and those are the people that we can trust. Now, it is a tr they are translations in other languages from the original text, but again, experts in the languages have put forth these very truths, and all the major translations say the very same thing. And so, again, I could say a lot more about that, but we're going to move on because I don't want to elaborate on any of that. Many other subjects we could do the same thing with. So let's stop right there and get to our text for today because I want to deal with this one very sensitive, um, thought-provoking, very serious subject that has a lot of emotion to it. So let's stand together and read from the text this morning several verses. I'm going to have you skip around just a little bit. In 1 John chapter 4, first of all, beginning in verse 7. This is John the Apostle, by the way, who also wrote the Gospel of John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now skip to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's skip down to verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. All right, please be seated. Now, for many of you, that's not an unfamiliar passage of Scripture. And uh, if you know anything about John the Apostle, you know he was also the one that was referred to as the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Uh, the letter of 1 John is literally filled with five chapters of nothing but, uh, I shouldn't say nothing but, but much about love and what real love is. And so the argument here, though, comes from this kind of passage or this formulation of understanding about God being love. Basically saying from the gay community, they would say, the Bible tells me that God is love. Therefore, how can loving someone of the same sex be wrong if I'm putting my hope and my trust in God? And I'd be the first to say, there's no denying that God is love. There's no one in their right mind who follows the scripture at all that could say that God is not love. John clearly has said that. He's made that abundantly known to us. By the way, spoken directly from the Holy Spirit, inspired in his own heart as the Spirit caused him to write exactly what he wrote using his own mannerisms and his own thinking and somehow in God's own 
uh, just amazing way. He gave John the ability to do what he did, just like he did all the other writers of, of Scripture that have been put together, to say to us with great assurance and confidence that God is absolutely love. We cannot deny that. In fact, the Old Testament brings it up numerous times over. I'll just give you one. One is sufficient. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And aren't you thankful for that? The same John, who's the writer of the gospel, has already mentioned. You know this verse as well as I do. For God so what? Loved. For God so loved. He demonstrated his love. By sending us his son. But here's the problem. The problem is love is not the only thing that defines God. God is much more than just love. And I want to be very careful in the way I define this. And the way that I describe this for you. Because I don't want to give any kind of confusing thoughts about it. But the reality is God describes himself in other terms as well. The very God that gave us what we have in our laps here as the inerrant word from himself also has defined himself in other terms, such as what we mentioned just a moment ago. Leviticus 19, that God is holy. In other places of scripture, Mark chapter 10, verse 18, we're told that he is good. In Psalm 86, 15, we're told that he is merciful. In Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5, we're told that he is powerful. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, we are told that he is just. In Deuteronomy 32, 4, we are told that he is righteous. In Colossians 1, verse 16 and 17, we're told that he is sovereign. And many other things that make up God, for the lack of correct terminology here just from my own human understanding and as God gives me understanding, uh, things that make him up. Uh, there are some others though. For example, again, back to 1 John 1, 5, we are told this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In John chapter 4, verse 24, back to the gospel, we're told that he is spirit in Hebrews 12, 25, we are told that he is a consuming fire. Now, again, we could go on with descriptive phrases about who God says he is. But the point is to think that God is love and only love and his defining characteristic is to miss the true understanding of who God is. And to say anything other than all of these collective attributes is to somehow Lower them if love is the pinnacle. Now I want you to hear me carefully because I'm not trying to minimize love. I'm not trying to elevate love. I'm simply saying to us in the infinite personality of who God is, he is defined by many characteristics, all of which formulate into the God that he is. And we're thankful that love is one of the attributes. Now, you may have noticed, if you're paying attention, that as I had you read through the text, I had you skip through very specific verses that are part of John's description of God because I wanted you to see why John highlights God's love. Again, John very clearly is defining in that passage of, of our text today who God is and his love, uh, but he defines for us the emphasis of his love. Now watch this. Go to verse 10, if you will, in 1 John 4, back to our text. John writes this, in this is love. Okay, he's defining for us what love is. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Okay, now we could stop right there. And that would be very synonymous with what we read in John 3.16. God loves us. He sent his son for us. Why, though, we have to ask the question, did he send his son? Well, John finishes that thought for us. And that is to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that's a big word. People don't often use that word. The word, though, simply means atoner. If you want a more simple version, it means one who forgives sins or one whom sins are forgiven. The Apostle Paul would say something very similar. In fact, he uses the exact same word, at least according to the New American Standard Version, in Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. This is a, a very common, very well-known verse as well. For all have sinned. And I hope you underline that because we want to come back to that. 
and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, that is a legal declaration, by the authority of God and the counsel of God as a gift of His grace or by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as, there it is, a propitiation, an atoner, someone by whom we are given the privilege and the honor, honestly, of being forgiven. And that was done through his blood. We believe by faith, Paul says, all to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of time, God passed over the sins previously committed. Now, he'll go on to describe what he means by that part. But just understand that in the totality of God's work, in the framework of all that God has done, God is love. But there's other facets to God for the specific purpose of dealing with our sin. Notice back to 1 John 4 and verse 17. I left this out as well. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence, how about this now, in the day of judgment. Well, that's a whole other subject. John is very clear in this that he is saying to us, listen, beloved, love and judgment, love and righteousness, love and the need for the forgiveness of sins go hand in hand. They are purposeful in their coming together. And so to say God, though, affirms a person just because he or she is love, or he is love, rather, misses the mark of who God really is in all of his fullness. Now, thinking about the subject of righteousness and dealing with areas of our life that need to be corrected, every one of you who are parents understand that in your love for your children, and I'm talking about your deep-seated love where you would literally give your life for your children, and that's who you are as parents. And I know you well enough to know that. And that's the way you think of them. Your desire is to shower them with all aspects of love. I mean, what parent doesn't want to do that, right? What parent doesn't want to give everything that they can from a heart of love? Well, you as those same parents also know that true love involves discipline, right? There needs to be correction. Love to be true love means that there needs to be times where we're adjusted. For example, a truly loving parent knows that even though their child may want to live off of nothing but cotton candy, understands that that's not what's going to be best. Now, as I use this illustration, I'm not trying to minimize the subject of what we're talking about here, and I'm not trying to, to bring it down to some level that's, that's unkind. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply trying to make a point. That in, in order to say that my God is a God of love, therefore it is okay for me to be or do or act or have this in the name of love is not correct. To be a parent in a loving way is a parent who says, no, there are some stoppage points. There are some stop signs. There are things I'm not going to let you do. Why? Because it's not what's best, right? Again, go back to the cotton candy thing. Who doesn't love cotton candy? Now, some of you who don't have a real life may not like sugar and candy and those kind of things. I, I make it a habit to spend lots of my life on candy. Um, but the reality is, all of us know that just doesn't work, right? So the point is well made. Kevin DeYoung now goes into, and I've quoted him several times, because again, I think he's done a marvelous job with this subject in, in many of these points. He's going to use a biblical illustration that helps align us with this same understanding from God's perspective. Now, I've given you a human perspective from me being a parent. But let's look at what God says here. And he's going to take us to Revelation chapter 2, specifically into the letter of, to the church in Thyatira. If you remember the study in Revelation that we did some years ago, or if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that John gets this amazing vision from the Lord. And first thing that the Lord tells him to do is, I want you to write down what I tell you, and we're going to send a letter. I'm going to have you send a letter to seven churches 
basically in the European Asian area of the time, and Thyatira is one of those. But Kevin DeYoung points out the fact that Thyatira is an example, becomes a church example of how even the best of churches can misunderstand what God's love really is. And I hope you can follow this. I think you will as we talk through it. So look beginning in verse 19 of Revelation 2. This is the Lord speaking. I know your deeds. Imagine Jesus saying this to the church. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Are you already seeing God's mind behind both of these subjects we're already talking about? Love and discipline? Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her. In other words, you understand the imagery of adultery, those who take part in the same kind of thing, into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, of her, her deeds rather. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, what I love about God is that when he's giving his correction, he starts out with the positive. He loves them first. Notice he says, I praise you basically for your deeds, your faith, your service, your perseverance. And hey, you're even growing in all of this. And what, an, what a wonderful affirmation. And I think that's a, that's a good word to each of us, just as a side note, when we're wanting to give correction, first give the positives and then do the correction. That's how the Lord does it. But then, as you heard, he sends this very strong message to the church. It's a, a message of discipline of really the most severe type. And that's because they tolerated, he says, this woman Jezebel. Now, in case you don't know, you've probably, I'm sure, heard the word Jezebel, the name Jezebel, probably even called people Jezebel before and you're joking. Jezebel was a woman from the Old Testament. Now, we're in the New Testament in Revelation 2, but this is a reference back to an Old Testament person who was the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, who was married to a man named Ahab, who was the king of Israel. That was the 10 northern tribes in Israel after they had split. She, however, was a false worshiper, like many of the people in that day. She was a follower of Baal who the text tells us led her husband, King Ahab, to do evil. Now, he was God's man in the sense that he was the king of Israel, but because she was a very dominant, powerful woman and his wife, she led him to do some things that were not of the Lord. Specifically, we're told that um, Ahab wanted a man's vineyard. Naboth was his name. And Naboth wouldn't give up the vineyard, and so Ahab kind of went home cowering, about that. And she says, are you the king? You're not the king, basically. Then take it. And he says, oh, no, he just won't give it up to me. And so she says, oh, I'll take care of it. And so through many means of extortion and, and all kinds of evil being led by demonic leadings, God tolerated her for a time, but eventually he took her life. And he said through the prophet that that's what he was going to do because he knew that her works would lead Israel into further sin. And that's typically how it works, right? When one thing is started, it will go further if it's not corrected. And that's because God knew that dominant people have a way of controlling others. Dominant people have a way of causing, and let's just use the phrase, the term weaker people, and I mean that in a loving sense, but people who are typically more strong or stronger in their personalities have a way of controlling others, for lack of better words. And God knew that Israel was going to listen to this woman because of her dominant personality. And just as God says, the people did tolerate her. Her husband tolerated her. Eventually, the beauty of the story is for Ahab is that he, he did repent. There's a beautiful section in there where he repents before the Lord and God forgives him. And God withholds what he says he's going to do. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, what does that have to do with Revelation? What does that have to do with the sin of homosexuality? 
What does that have to do with our subject? Well, again, I'm simply trying to help you to see how God deals with things in his own way when he says something is not right. So the connection is Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira that there is a person, not this woman Jezebel, because dogs ate her, literally, if you go back to the Old Testament. That's not the same woman, but he's saying there's a woman like Jezebel in your midst in the church and you're tolerating her. You're putting up with her. Probably, and this is my estimation of why God's saying this, is that they probably are thinking the church is the place to love people. Right? After all, God is what? Love. So where else are people going to be loved but in the church? And we would all give our hearty affirmation of that, wouldn't we? But clearly the Lord is making a definitive line here. And he's saying there are times when you cannot just tolerate something in the name of love and think it to be love. I'm sure the church here in their growing way probably really wanted to just have whomever this person was be included in the body of Christ. But the Lord says the greater love is to get this woman out of your midst. Now, let me say that again. The greater love is to get her out of the church. Why? Because she will bring the others down. And that's the way it works, right? The one bad apple in the bushel is not made good by the other good apples. Typically, what happens is the bad apple in the bushel ruins the rest of them. And God says, I want you to be holy, and in your midst there is unholiness. And so you're to deal with that. And not just assume that what you think and feel is right because I am a God of love is what I want in my church for everybody and anybody. Yes, absolutely I am God. But I'm not going to deal with everybody in a way that a parent would think would be right because their child says, give me cotton candy for breakfast. You know, sometimes I think we take the posture that God is love and therefore God should never let anything bad happen to me. God should never let me go astray or anything or whatever should never happen in my life. Why? Because I'm believing in this God of love. And, and if I have this emotion of love towards somebody else, how in the world could that be wrong? Because after all, God is love. But the point we're simply trying to make here is that scripture tells us God is not just love. In his love, he will correct us, which is really love. And that's what scripture tells us, right? Those whom he loves, he what? He disciplines. He corrects. So let's read this again in Revelation 2. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. That's what he says. And I love that because it tells us that God is not intolerant but he does demand a life of righteousness. He's patient, he's kind, but he does demand it. And look, look, she does not want to repent of her immorality. Now, so the result is, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her. In other words, those who give in to her life and what she's trying to promote. If you align yourself with this, I will deal with you the same way. Why? Because you're affirming something that I am against. Unless, verse 22, they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. Notice this. And all the churches will know. This is a message to the churches. Listen to what I'm saying. That I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now we could put just about any subject in there. What God is saying here specifically is that, look, I know what's best for you. Have you ever said that as a parent? Mm -hmm. Honey, I know you want cotton candy. Daddy loves cotton candy too. <laughs> I mean, I just want to gobble it up myself. But I love you more than I want you to love cotton candy. That's God. And we're like that because God's like that, right? We're made in his image. 
Now going on, listen to what the Lord says to those in the church in Thyatira who don't follow this faulty misunderstanding about love. Pick up in verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Isn't that beautiful? Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come. In other words, hold on to the truth. Keep living the righteous life that I've commanded you to live. Verse 26, and he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he's quoting an Old Testament passage here. And he shall rule them with an iron rod as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I have also received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Kevin DeYoung again says this, that I just love his summation of this. He says, now in our cultural mindset, along this subject specifically of gay lifestyle is not the time for fuzzy thinking. Now is not the time to shy away from careful definitions. But don't you see, beloved, that's exactly what Satan is trying to propose? Here's what he does. Oh, I know that God hates sexual immorality of any sort. So I'm going to cause a blindness over the sinful people of the world to believe that God is love, and we're just keeping it specific here, we could use any subject, so that they believe this is what's really right. He knows it's a lie, and he knows we will follow into something that's not right. And so one of the ways he does that is he says, let's create a law where we'll put enough fear in their hearts to where we'll put them in jail or worse, take their lives if they speak out against it, or, as Kevin DeYoung says, we come up with a different way of defining what love really is. Now's not the time even to let moods substitute for logic. These are difficult issues. These are personal issues, and they are. You know, because my mom used to say, it may be puppy love, but it's real love to the puppy. That's pretty smart from a mom. And so people who are involved, and I want to be very sensitive here, people who are involved in the gay lifestyle genuinely love from their own perspective. And so I think Kevin's right here. This is a very personal issue. It's a very emotional issue. He says these are complicated issues. We cannot chart our ethical course, however, by what feels better. We cannot build our theology based on what makes us look nicer. We can't abdicate intellectual responsibility because smart people disagree. You know what happens in our culture? You don't agree with me, so I'll just quit. And we certainly can't keep our Bibles closed. We must submit ourselves to Scripture and let God be true, even if it makes every man a liar, Romans 3, 4. It's easy to say things like, Love is more important than religion, or God's grace is always surprising and scandalous, or Jesus upset the traditionalists of his day and embraced the outcasts. But Kevin says, what did any of these pious-sounding phrases actually mean? In other words, very simply, people can come up with whatever they want about God and make him whoever they want him to be, but there is only one God, beloved, and that is the God of the Bible, who is absolutely love, with great certainty, but the fact that God is love doesn't give the culture the right or the permission to throw out his other attributes as if they are less essential. To do that is to do nothing more than change the God of the Bible. And that's what we have. We have people making up a God who is not the God of the Bible. Okay, now, just real quickly, let's, let's just back up for a second and assume something. Let's just assume, for the case of the argument, that Kevin DeYoung is wrong and everything he's written and every other pastor who's preached on this subject is wrong. I'm wrong about this subject. That could only mean a couple of things, really, in my estimation. And that is, number one, there is something missing in Scripture 
that somebody else understands and it's there that nobody else knows or only certain people know. Or, and I think this is what we would say, it's not truly the inerrant word of God, if that's what's believed. Or God rewrote something that only certain biblical scholars know about. I mean, there's just not but so many options. I mean, the reality is, if the Bible that you hold in your laps right now is not the inerrant, infallible, most holy word of God, then what is it? Why are we even using it? I mean, we've joked before about the number of times that we could refer to it as a great suggestion book. But who wants suggestions for life unless it's just because you want to live the life that you want to live and you're not concerned about the God that there is? But we know it to be the infallible Word of God. And because it is, we know then in this particular subject, sacred scripture says that homosexuality is not ever shown in a positive light. In fact, I would challenge you. I would challenge anybody to give me one example where God blesses it. Just one. Just one instance in scripture where God says, this lifestyle I, I affirm. Well, guess what? You're not going to find it. Not in the Bible. You'll find it in other things, but you're not going to find it in the word of the Lord. Unless the other things be true that somehow this is really just a suggestion book. But nowhere, beloved, nowhere. And I could give you argument after argument, but the impetus or, or the, 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 the proving ground is on the person of the other side to take the Bible that you and I know it is and say it says somewhere that God is not referring to what he's referring to or he's making homosexuality or the gay lifestyle in some positive light and it's not going to be found. Not if you're studying it truthfully for what it is. Now, with all of that being said, as we close out our thoughts here, as we come to the final thought here this morning, I want to make sure that we all understand, and you've heard me say this in not so many words, but in some words directly, but I want to make it very, very clear is that neither homosexuality or any form of sexual deviance or any other sin is the only thing that keeps us out of heaven. I mean, in other words, we all sin, right? We are all sinners. Sin is what keeps us out of heaven. Sin that's not repented of. Sin that's not turned over to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is a blanket statement. That's not a definitive, specific category that God is instituting here. He is saying that all unrighteousness in people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those people who are inherently unrighteous. Well, who is that? That's every one of us who come into this world as sinful people, right? And so Paul says in verse 9 there in, verse, in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, do not be deceived... And that word deceived means don't wonder, don't be confused, don't be a, don't misinformed. Neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You know what a fornicator is? A fornicator is a person who indulges in some form of sexual immorality, particularly among unmarried persons. That's typically the word that's used in that sense. An idolater is that person who worships a false god or any type of false religious system. And there are many idols in life, beloved. You know, we sometimes think that the idol is just the little trinket sitting on the shelf. But that's not the case. What about the idol of control? I mean, there are some people that worship control. And I'm talking about people who have been washed of their sins that need to continue to repent from that? What about the idol of pride or just the unwillingness to change? The truth is an idol is anything in your life that takes precedence over God. Anything. You, you, you figure it out. 
just look at whatever it is in your life and adjust it according to this thing or, or give reference to it according to this kind of thought is that anything that takes precedence over God is an idol. It could be a child. It could be a spouse. It could be a, a job. It could be a house. It could be a pair of socks. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is. Effeminate is a word that literally means soft. And it was purposefully chosen here by the Spirit because in this context, it, it is referring to men who act soft like women. It's the understanding that we all have about the differences between a male and a female. There's a distinction in that way. The, the, the stronger or the weaker sex. I mean, this is what God says. Or even usage used in a way of referring to the normal sex sexual functions of a man or a woman, which can refer to transvestites or anybody else who go through gender perversions. And again, I'm not using those words to be hurtful. I'm just trying to be clear here. Revilers, those are people who destroy others with their words. Swindlers, people who take advantage of someone, usually through stealing and for some financial gain. Uh, you may not see yourself in this, uh, but it creeps up on us. Have you ever tried to sell something like at a yard sale? Somebody comes up and says, oh, that's pretty cool. Does that work? Well, I mean, yeah, it used to work. I mean, but in your mind, you're like, I'm pretty sure that doesn't work. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know it works. So, because you don't want to lose the sale. How many of you have ever tried to sell a used car? Well, you know the blemishes and the problems with it. And, and internally, you feel like, oh, if I share that, then they're not going to want it. And they... Ask questions. You, well, no, it's fine. It should, should be great. It's been great for me. In the back of your mind, you know, well, that's swindling because you don't want to miss the sale, right? I mean, these things show up ad nauseum. Well, Paul concludes by saying, look, those people won't inherit the kingdom of God. We hear that and we swallow hard and we go, ooh. I mean, you know, I felt pretty good when the subject was on what it was on, but now I'm not so sure about this. But you might also be saying, well, I sure am glad I don't fall into those categories. Well, God knows that we'll think that way, so he gives us another list of the church in Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 19. But the deeds of the flesh are evident. In other words, pretty clear, folks. I mean, this is not rocket science. Which are, the first three are sexual in nature, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's idol worship, enmities or, or religious in nature, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Again, Paul doesn't make this exhaustive. Why? Because he's just giving us the basic understanding here of which I forewarned you as just I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, what? Are going to get a slap on the wrist? That God is going to not love them quite as much as he loves somebody else? That we have to redefine who God is? No, he says, you're not going to get into heaven. How much clearer can I make this? Now, I'm not going to go through all of those, but let me just clarify a couple of these. Enmity, because some people might not know what they are. Enmity is the person who says, or the person who is always at odds with somebody. You know, that person that just can't get along. They just, just, just have a tough time with people all the time. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says we're to love our enemies? See, we have this way of creating certain walls among us where we define what's okay and what's not okay. And Jesus comes through in the Sermon on the Mount and he just obliterates our thinking and says, here's, here's the deal, folks. Love your enemies. You decide who your enemy is and you love them. Strife is the person who has some confrontation with others. Others. It can be verbal, doesn't have to be verbal. It can be direct or indirect, it doesn't matter. It's just the idea of saying bad things about them or some type of hostility toward them or some type of antagonistic antagonism between you and the other person. That's, that's the person who lives with a heart of strife. Jealousy, don't have to really explain that, but I will. It's that strong feeling of resentment against someone because they have something that you don't have. Pretty simple, which, by the way, will lead to coveting. And how about this one? This is the one that gets a lot of people, outbursts of anger. 
Ooh. That's that state of intense rage, though. This, this person is the one who is just constantly angry over things, just easily fired. You ever met people like that? You're just kind of not sure how you are around them. They, they just seem like they're a, a loaded gun, and, and you're just not sure when things are going to blow up. Disputes, that's the person that creates some type of rivalry. Dissensions is the person who causes other people to be angry at one another. They're kind of like the person in the middle that's instigating stuff between other people to not like each other or to cause them to think of each other as enemies. You know, you hear somebody say, yeah, you shouldn't take that. No, that's not, come on. Kind of like that, give it back to them. You know, show them who's boss. Be in charge instead of bringing things together. Factions are the people who divide instead of bringing them together. When Jesus said, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the sons of God. And so Paul very clearly showing the churches how to discern between the flesh that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven versus those who do make it to heaven. He adds, envying, drunken, drunkenness, carousing, all refer to this crazy, wild, boisterous, uncontrollable, crude lifestyle. Again, coming to the final conclusion in verse 21, those who practice. Now, let's be clear about the practice. The practice are those people who make it a part of their lifestyle. He's not talking about mistakes. All of us know what it means to erupt in anger at some point. That's not the point. The point is not that. The point is people who live consistently as the normal pattern of their life like this. He is saying, look, that's the flesh. That's what will keep you out of heaven. It has to be dealt with. And God, according to our subject now, is not going to look at any of our sins, homosexuality or anything else, and say, it's okay. Pat us on the back, give us a drink of water, and rush us off to bed. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to say, I got to take that from you. It's got to be rid of you. It's got to be repented of and let me pay the price with my life for you to be made righteous. That's the only way this works. So basically, in a loving, gracious, kind, purposeful sensitive way we say to the gay community, yes, God loves you. He loves me. He wants us to love others, but he will not abdicate everything else about himself just so we can follow our emotions or what we want to define as love. We can't do it. To do that is to make God a different God from what the Bible teaches us. Now, some of you even still, and we'll just, I promise you we'll be done here, might say, whew, man, I'm really glad I'm not included in any of that. So we get another one in Revelation 21, verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and you're still wiping your brow saying, thank the Lord, I'm okay. And then he says, liars. And we're going, ugh. Okay. You know what a lie is. That's when you make something different from what it really is. Bottom line. Notice what he says. They will take part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But when we do it God's way, and we listen to what he says, listen to how Paul concludes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. I love this. I can just see Paul standing there. Now, this is a letter but I can see him in his heart standing before the church as, after he delivers this very, very difficult message. And he says, but listen, look at verse 11. Such were some of you. You know what? That was you, and that was you, and that was you, and that was you, and that was you. And guess what? That was me too. Go back to Philippians chapter 3 where he boasts about his life. But you were washed. You were sanctified. In other words, you were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, if you want to put love into this, because God is love, you and I, who were those people, 
have the joy of knowing that he will forgive us and he will change us and he will save us when we repent of what he calls sin and as he defines sin, not what we define as sin, and he will bring us into his kingdom. Meaning, very simply, beloved, that God is in the business of fixing what's broken. Don't you love that? Aren't you thankful for a God like that? If you've been into the depths of sin, forget homosexuality for a minute. Let's just talk about everything else. If you've been into the depths of sin and you stood before the Lord in your spirit at some point, and and I'm not trying to make this weird or mystical, but you knew that God was dealing with your heart and he was pointing his finger at places in your life that you knew weren't right. If you've been there with him and you've repented of that, you understand his forgiving power and your life has changed. That's what Paul's talking about. You understand the difference. You know that he can fix brokenness. No matter what it is. I just had a conversation just yesterday with somebody who's been married for 42 years. Uh, Their husband has left them for another woman. and, And both of them professing to be believers. And this was a long distance away. And, and what a joy it is to always say, through Jesus Christ, any relationship can be fixed. Anything. And Paul concludes it by saying in Ephesians 1 to the church, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He lavished on us. Because of what he has done. And so I just have to say, as much as this is a tough subject, it's imperative, beloved, that we understand the sin of homosexuality, transgenderism, whatever you want to call the sexual deviance, it doesn't matter. It is forgivable. God can and will redeem every soul that's in the darkest of places, no matter who they are or where they've been or what they've done the Lord Jesus Christ, and God himself, the Father, loves us. And that's why he came, to rescue us from the sin that will send us away by his own justness and his own righteousness. And so here Paul, as he says this to this subject, and really not to this subject, but he's just writing the letter to Timothy as he's opening up his thoughts to young Timothy. He says, my goal as a believer is to, verse 5, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That should be us. In everything that we're promoting from the Bible should be from a pure heart, not for wrong motives, not because we have some agenda, but because we just have a conscience that has been changed and affected and we want everybody else to experience the same thing and the loving and healing power of God as we trust him by faith. That's real love. If we want to define a God by love, That's the God that the Bible promotes as the God of love. Praise his name, right? And amen for that. So, for those who might hear this message and wonder, you know, many people are caught in sins. They're caught in the depths of things that they sometimes don't even know how to get out of. They go so deep into things that they just are not sure. You've heard people say this before. I've had, I don't know how many people tell me over the years, oh, if I went to church, the building would fall down right? What are they saying? They're saying that, no, my sin is so bad. It is so bad that God, there's no way that God would ever forgive me. But that's not true. That's a lie. I've never seen a building fall down because somebody was inside of it. (laughs) Who was a sinner. I mean, now, maybe God's done that. But I'm just telling you, the Bible says, if you repent, And you trust Jesus as the one who paid your debt, the atoner, the one who makes possible forgiveness, he will forgive you. Just like he forgave Ahab and everybody else. And remember this too. And I think this is really good. Our stories, if we're still on this planet, are not completed yet. As far as you and I know, right? God's not written the story yet, completely. And so there very well may be, and there have been people that we know now who are very public about their former lifestyle that God has rescued because they humbled themselves. And they said, God, yes, I'm going to do it your way, not my way. 
And so there are many, many wonderful stories about that, okay? Why? Because there's hope in the resurrection. That's what the resurrection did for us. It paid the debt of our sin, but it gave us the ability to live again. And praise his name. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, as we come to the conclusion of this so-called little mini-series, we understand as a church that um, we're living in the midst of a culture that redefines many, many things that you have made very clear in your word. And I think one of the, the greatest tragedies, uh, and I should say the greatest triumph by Satan has been to cause people to do what they do in the name of what's called love. Father, who in their right mind would argue with someone about what the definition of love is? Well, those people who are truly in their right mind and know the truth, again, not out of a heart of condemnation, but a heart out of saying, listen to the truth. Understand that you are a God who loves us, but your love is predicated on all that you are not just one part. Thank you, Father, for your forgiving heart, for the spirit that lives in you and the spirit that is you, the spirit that lives in us, rather, that you give to us to give us the guidance and the sustenance of this life. Lord, we realize and know of certainty as you've written in your word that the days will not get better until you come again. And so we're not surprised but we are heartbroken. And so we ask that you would help us to serve others, yes, with a heart of love, but yet living a life of truth. Help us to not be ashamed of who you are, lest you be ashamed to mention us to your Father. And so hear us, we pray, Lord. Hear our hearts. And as I pray for all of us in our congregation, and even for those that might be listening, Lord, I pray that you would have a a great desire to forgive us as we surrender our hearts to you as a church. Lead us now, Lord, even as Brother Jeff has said, into the areas that we need help with, into the future, and however you want us to be as a church. Uh, we will follow you to the best of our ability with your strength. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. song, my prayer is that you would all take this into the week with you. It's a scripture based on Isaiah 26, I believe. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. I'll sing it through once, and then we'll all sing it together a few times to really get it in there, okay?
this day and we praise you and honor you for who you are. And we have only one desire, that you would lead us in the paths of righteousness. Lord, in ourselves we're weak and we stumble and we fall. And all of us, like Paul, could say that we are the chief among all sinners. But thank you, Lord, that there is no sin greater than another that you cannot forgive and that you will not pay the redemption price for. Thank you for your restoring power, we pray, Lord. Do this work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you all.